Well, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales, and I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And uh, I want to invite you to turn with me in uh, your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible on the ground near you that's blue, and you can find uh, Hebrews 6 on page 1004. Um, my wife and I this week had the privilege of... Um, going to a conference in Texas where Ashley was speaking. I was a kept man on this, uh, this trip. And uh, it, was, uh, it was great to uh, get some time away. And, um, you know, coming back home, it was just one of those, sometimes getting away gives you perspective. And, um, you know, we got to be in this conference and be in, a, in, a, in an auditorium with 3,000 people uh, worshiping together, and yet being back here this morning, it just reminds me of how much I love you and how thankful I am for Resurrection OC. And so, uh, just kind of off the cuff this morning, I just wanted to say that to you because I don't probably say it enough. And uh, those of you, especially who are regular parts of our church, um, I just want you to know how thankful that I am for each of you. And if you're here for the first time, I like you a lot, too. So thanks for being here. Um, with that, would you um, stand with me? It's our practice here at Resurrection SC to stand as we hear uh, God's word so we can very clearly distinguish between God's words and my words. Um, God's words are true and give life. So let's read Hebrews 6, starting at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having, plen uh, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils, and those, who, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. Skip down to verse 22. 
This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. It is given to you because God loves you. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. God, these words, if we're honest, are confusing to us. And so we pray that you would uh, be at work in our midst. That you would expand our imaginations and fill our hearts. And that by the power of your spirit, we might... um, understand Jesus and all he has done for us more fully. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, this uh, last week, I watched a uh, a documentary uh, about an expedition to the South Pole, uh, or at least an attempted expedition to the South Pole that began in 1914. Uh, Ernest Shackleton Um, was a polar explorer, and in August of 1914, he and 27 men set sail for Antarctica, and uh, it had been Shackleton's uh, goal to be the first one to reach the South Pole, and somebody else beat him to the punch. And so a few years later, he came back to Antarctica, and he decided that he would be the first one to cross the continent from one side to the other, crossing through the South Pole on foot. And so he took 27 men and 50 dogs and sailed towards Antarctica, and they never actually set foot on the continent. Before they could get to land, their ship became uh, kind of mired and and caught and stuck in the pack ice that uh, surrounds the, um, the continent of Antarctica. And after trying unsuccessfully to free their ship from the ice, they eventually had to abandon their ship. And they went out onto, think about this, the ice. It's floating in the ocean. And they sat there and basically watched as the ice, the pressure of the ice pushed against their ship and capsized it and eventually destroyed it and sank their ship. And uh, as best I can tell, they floated on ice for 14 months. For 14 months, uh, they camped in a makeshift camp on the ice, and they just floated wherever uh, the ice took them. They ate uh, penguins and seal steaks, and they drifted wherever the environment, the circumstances around them took them feeling completely stuck and at the mercy of forces outside of their control. Without being too dramatic, 
I want to ask you if you ever feel like that. Do you ever feel like you are the victim of your circumstances? Do you ever feel like, yeah, we have goals, we have things we want to do, um, but life happens, and uh, circumstances beyond my control throw things off course? Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever think, um, you know, we're planning on, you know, we've got this plan, and then we just get hit by something that we didn't see coming, and now we're stuck? Um, You know, those of you that are parents, moms, you ever feel like you've got a plan for the day, and then, like, the nap doesn't happen, and everything is lost, and you can't recover? It has been a a hard season this fall. even just this morning, as I, as I look out at you, um, I'm reminded of just the various conversations that we have had over the course of this fall. Um, this is getting a little depressing. Let me just, if you're here for the first time, let me tell you how this is going to go. I'm trying to set the context for this passage, and it's just going to get depressing for a couple minutes. And I know we just read this really confusing passage, and I'm, then I'm going to explain it, and then we're going to see Jesus, and we're going to leave here with hope, because Jesus is... Good, okay? So just bear with me, because this is going to get a little depressing for a minute. But this fall, this fall has been brutal in our church. Um, You know, uh, people, you, dealing with sickness, disease, um, being struck just completely blindsided by the death of friends, co-workers, loved ones. Um... You know, I've sat and talked with you about friendships and marriages going bad. Uh, Some of us have been shaken by news of uh, pastors who we love and other churches who have uh, resigned. Um, It's been a hard season for our church as families that we know and love have have left our church. Um, It's been a hard season. And... um, at the national level, you know, they say that the economy right now is maybe as strong as it has ever been, and you wouldn't know it from looking at the news, would you? Did, you, did anybody hear there was an election this week? That was a really peaceful event, wasn't it? It's been a hard season, and it can feel like we're adrift and we're at the mercy of circumstances beyond our control. And no matter what, as individuals or as families or even as a church, we, you know, we set as our goals and our priorities, uh, life happens. And it feels like we're being buffeted by, by these circumstances um, that are external to us. And no matter how hard we try, we cannot make any progress. And if we're ever going to be at peace, we need an anchor. If we're ever going to be at peace, we need an anchor that will hold us firm when the winds of life blow against us. Because um, there are two things that I can tell you for sure in life. There are two things that will absolutely happen in your life. The one is that you will be beaten back by sin and death. Uh, And I know we're still in the the, the depressing part of the sermon, don't worry, but... um, Sin taints everything and death brings everything to an end. And life is often um, hard. And we go through these, these periods and these seasons sometimes where it just feels like 
no matter what we try, no matter how hard we try, uh, sin and death just ruin everything. That will absolutely happen to us. Life will bring us challenges and struggles. And the second thing I can tell you is this, that when we face struggles and sin and death corrupt our work and push against us, that we will absolutely respond to those struggles in a way that is in keeping with our character. It's easy to think that when the challenge comes, we will rise to meet the occasion. And the truth is that you will only rise to meet the occasion if you have a history of looking challenges in the face and taking them head on. If that is who you are, if that is your character. Um, if we think we can stand up against our circumstances that are pushing, us against, pushing against us and we can just kind of grit it out, then we are fooling ourselves. We need an anchor that will not move. Because our struggles will bring to the surface what is already there and show our character for what it is. Often when we hear somebody talk about character, the message is something like, so you better be disciplined, and uh, you better get ready, and you better be ready to make sacrifices, and you better just be tough. Uh, because that's what character is, gosh darn it. And Hebrews comes along and says, no, that's not what character is. Character is knowing that you have an anchor when the winds of life buffet you and push up against you, and life is a struggle. Character is not found in your strength. Character is found in tethering yourself to Christ. Though we may be buffeted by winds on the surface, you can weather the storm when you have an anchor that is secure that will not be moved. Listen again to these words, Hebrews 6. It is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. What it's saying is this, if we are going to weather the storms that sin and death will hurl at us, we have to have an anchor. We have to have an anchor that will hold us. So the question is this, how tightly are you holding on to your anchor? Without an anchor, we'll be, we'll be tempted either to just kind of grit it out or to run and hide when life hits. But this passage is telling us that we can trust Jesus to be our anchor because he has already passed through death. And he has entered into, and it says, what's it talking about when it says he has entered through the veil? It's saying he has entered into the, into the innermost part of heaven, into the throne room of God himself, where he sits at God's right hand. Try to get your head around that for a second. He sits on the right hand of a God who does not have a body. And he prays for you. That is your anchor. Hold on to him. Um, okay, this passage is confusing. <laughs> I know that what in the world is he talking about? And who is this guy Melchizedek? What in the world? I'm going to try to explain this, okay? Uh, what is he saying? Hold on to Jesus because he is your anchor. And then he explains that with this sort of extended metaphor or illustration about this man named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a very, um, is almost like this mythical creature. 
Uh, Melchizedek is like the Kaiser Soze of the Old Testament, if we have any fans of the usual suspects, um, except without the drugs and killing part. But he's like this myth. He's only mentioned once in the book of Genesis. And then hundreds of years later, he comes up in Psalm 110, where King David is, is meditating on what the, what the Messiah, when he comes, will, will, will be like. And he says that this Messiah will be a, a priest forever, just like Melchizedek. And that's the only thing that the, uh, that the Bible says about Melchizedek until Hebrews comes along. And the author of Hebrews is like this kid who just learned a new word, and he's like, I'm going to talk a lot about Melchizedek. And we're like, what are you saying here, man? Um, what he's saying is this. When we face the storms of life, we look for something that feels safe. And so, as I've been saying over and over again, as we've, if you're uh, here with us for the first time, we're working our way through the book of Hebrews. And we've been saying that the book of Hebrews, the, the original audience, they had a background in Judaism. And so when, when life hits, you know, when you're buffeted by the storms of life, we are tempted to seek safety and comfort in something that feels familiar. And so the original audience is tempted to, to go back into the kind of ritual and tradition of their Jewish upbringing, to go back to the, the sacrifices and the temple um, and, to, um, to, and to find safety in their identity. And so the author says something to them that is, he's, he wouldn't say this if he was talking to us because you have never been tempted to go back and sacrifice animals at a temple in Jerusalem, have you? Uh, you wouldn't find safety or comfort in that, but that's what he, this is who he's talking to. He's not talking to us. And so the author is, is telling them, you don't have to go back to the temple because you have a high priest in Jesus who has made a final and ultimate sacrifice in his own body. <clears throat> But to develop that argument, he goes all the way back to Abraham, who was the, you know, the father, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, the, you know, the, the kind of founding, the George Washington of Judaism, right? Uh, he goes all the way back to Abraham. And what he's saying is, look, you're trying to uh, push back against sin and death as it creeps into your life by going to this place of safety and comfort in the Jewish sacrificial system, and you don't have to do that because you have a high priest who has made a sacrifice for you once and for all. And to develop that argument, he says, consider Abraham. Abraham lived before the sacrificial system ever was invented, and he was blessed by another priest whose name was Melchizedek. He's like super excited about Melchizedek. And he says some things that are very strange. And if I can say this, maybe even a little bit shady about Melchizedek. We'll get to that in a minute. But Melchizedek is a mysterious figure. Um, but what he's saying is this. You can trust Jesus because he's just like and even better than Melchizedek. And in particular, Jesus is like Melchizedek in two specific ways. So first, he says, just listen to the guy's name. Um, in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, or maybe 1, 2, and 3, he says this. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Okay, that's who is his name and his title. He met Abraham, who's returning from war. And Abraham comes back from war, and he offers a tithe uh, to Melchizedek, the priest. And then it says this at the end of verse 2. He is Melchizedek. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. What he's saying, the name Melchizedek, 
What it literally means is king of righteousness or king of justice. And then he is also king of Salem. So, so his name means king of justice, but his title is king of Salem or king of peace. Salem means peace. And so uh, kings in this time were not like the king of England who ruled the whole world. Uh, kings were like local, you know, like a sheikh. You know, he's just in charge of this local area. Um, and he was the king in Jerusalem or Salem. He's the king of peace. And so what he's saying is, look, Melchizedek, it was the king of justice, who was also the king of peace. And Jesus is the true and better and ultimate Melchizedek. And so Jesus is the one who deals with our sin because he is both the king of justice and the king of peace. Or in other words, what he's saying is you can trust Jesus. Jesus is our anchor in heaven because he is not tainted by sin. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died a perfect death on the cross. And then Jesus was resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven where he now sits enthroned and he is untainted by sin. So bind yourself to him. Okay, you got all that? Because that's the first part. <laughs> um, this week, as I told you, we were, Ashley and I, my wife and I were at a conference in Texas and we heard uh, one of the main speakers was a, a, a guy named Ed Stetzer, who's like a professor and theologian and, and missiologist. And um, he was saying that last Wednesday, uh, you know, this election that was on Tuesday uh, happened. And Wednesday morning, Ed Stetzer was being interviewed on NPR uh, on Morning Edition, where millions of people are listening to him talk about Christians and the church's response to the election, because that is apparently the best thing to talk about the morning after an election. And he said the, the interview ended with this question. The, the, the NPR host asked Ed Stetzer, are Christians hitching their wagon to a, a controversial politician that is going to uh, lose for them over time? Okay, that's the question. Are Christians hitching their wagon to a politician who is a losing bet ultimately for them? And Ed Stetzer said, you know, I am very reluctant to see Christians hitching their wagon to anyone other than Jesus. And on Friday morning, he said, you know, I said that because at the moment it seemed like the least controversial thing that I could say. And then I opened my email and discovered that I was wrong because they said I was getting blasted by people left, right, and center saying, how could you say such a whatever, you know, just vitriol. Um, emails, tweets coming in expressing incredible dismay and anger. And so his comment at the conference on Friday was this. Many Christians today appear to be discipled or spiritually shaped by our social media feeds and cable news preferences more than by Jesus and his word. So what are we hitching our wagon to? It's another way of saying, what are we anchored to? Again, let me be clear. I am not um, you know, saying that Christians should be uninvolved in politics. I mean, you could even vote if your conscience allow allows you. <laughs> This is simply an observation that we can either bind ourselves to Jesus, who is our anchor that will not, be, will not be moved, or we can hitch our wagon to 
politicians or political parties or public opinion that is a constantly moving target. And if you don't know how true that is, all you have to do is go back and look at you know, the way Ronald Reagan or George Bush talked about immigration 20, 30 years ago, or the way that Bill Clinton talked about um, gender and marriage issues, what, 15, 20, well, 25 years ago, uh, to see how much our culture has changed in that time. And we cannot hitch our wagon uh, to something that is moving because it will not hold our weight when we are buffeted by the winds of real life. So sure, vote if your conscience will let you, but hitch your wagon to Jesus because he is the only one that is not tainted by sin. That's the first thing that we learn about Jesus via Melchizedek. The second thing that the writer says, um, it, this is where it gets a little bit shady, but this is what he says. Look at verse 3. This is so funny. He really likes Melchizedek. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Do you understand what he's saying? He says, <laughs> he's saying Melchizedek didn't have parents, and he didn't have any offspring, and he never died, so he's eternal. Now, why is he saying that? Well, um, if you read the book of Genesis, the, the, uh, what you notice is that everybody is introduced by their genealogy. You know, before you learn, uh, uh, before the writer talks about who anybody is, it tells you, like, generations back who they came from. And um, we don't care about this, but in the ancient world, you were, we didn't care who you were until we knew who your people were. And so Genesis always introduces somebody by saying this is who his people were. Uh, but Melchizedek, um, we're never told who Melchizedek's people were. And uh, we're not told that he had any offspring. And then the other thing that happens in Genesis is that we're always told that somebody dies. Uh, you know, you get to the end of the book, and Joseph, he's in the center of the book for 15 chapters, and it says, and, you know, and he died. It doesn't say it like that, but it tells you he died. But it never says that Melchizedek died. And so, therefore, he's eternal. And I, I guess the best way I can say this is that um, sometimes... Preachers are given to like rhetorical flourish, even if it maybe doesn't quite hold the water. And I, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to get fired for saying something like that about the Bible. Um, but I think that's what he's, he's he's doing. Of course, he had parents. Of course, he had he he died. But he's just making this rhetorical point, saying that Melchizedek, this mythical creature, lived forever. And and he's saying, okay, so that's what he's saying about Melchizedek. Whatever you might think about that, the point that he's making is that Jesus is eternal. Um, Jesus is not tainted by death. Uh, he's not tainted by sin, but neither is he tainted by death. Because he has died and been resurrected again, he is a priest forever, just like Melchizedek. Even if Melchizedek wasn't a priest forever. Um, and so this is, this is how he kind of concludes it in, in verses 22 and following. He says this, he says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So these priests came, but they just died. Every single one of them died. But now we have a priest who never dies. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, 
He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession to pray for us. Jesus never dies, and so he's able to save completely and utterly those who draw near to him. He prays for you. The original audience is being buffeted by their circumstances. They're looking for something safe and familiar. And so they want to go back to the priesthood and the sacrifices. And the writer says, you don't need that because you have a permanent priest who sacrificed himself once and for all, and it is done. That's all you need. Now, we would never be tempted to go back to the sacrificial system, would we? But we look for something to make us feel safe and comfortable when life is hard. Uh, for many of us, you know, what are things that we look to? Uh, for some of us, it's just money. Like our bank account. I, I can totally handle whatever life throws at me as long as I know that I'm going to be able to like, put food on the table and pay bills. Like We'll get through this hard time. I can totally handle life storms as long as I know I'm going to get paid. But the moment you know, my livelihood is threatened, I am lost. I totally feel like that. But the problem is this. We can never know when enough is enough. Uh, when, we, when we don't have money, we're scared. When we, when we have money, we're afraid that it's not enough. It's going to run out. Because our bank accounts are finite. They have an end point. So we always think we need more. And only Jesus is eternal. No matter how much money you have, you can get to the end of it. But you can never get to the end of Jesus. Some of us look for comfort or safety in our career. Some of us look for comfort or safety in a relationship. I uh, heard somebody uh, uh, re, uh, repeat this quote this week. Lady Gaga that fount of wisdom. Lady Gaga once said this, some women choose to follow men and some women choose to follow their dreams. If you're wondering which way to go, remember that your career will never wake up and tell you that it doesn't love you anymore. I gotta think that Lady Gaga must have been very early on in her career when she said career will never fail you. I think the irony of that statement is that she said it in 2008 when millions of Americans woke up to, found, to find that their career did not love them anymore. Whatever we cling to when life pushes against us, it will move, it will fail, it will come to an end. Except Jesus, he is enough, he is sufficient. He alone is unaffected by sin or death. Hebrews begins by telling us that when he had finished his work, he sat down because he is done. He's done all that he came to do. His work is, is done. It's not, it's not even based on he's really strong and he's going to get it done. But no, he's already done. It's, a, it's, a, it's an act of history. It's finished. He has sat, sat down in the throne room of heaven where he prays for you. He is our anchor when we are buffeted by life. So bind yourself to him. So the question then becomes, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what does that actually look like? And I, I want to say two things to try to answer that question. What would it look like in our lives to bind ourselves to Jesus? I want to try to be practical here. And the, the first thing I need you to see this, this is so important. The, the question is this, what, what does it feel like to be anchored to Jesus? 
man, I think if you don't think about this on the front end, that when life hits you, it's going to be bad news. Because think about this. That, that image of being anchored in Christ, like it's such a beautiful image, isn't it? Or I, I, at the beginning of our service, I read Psalm 1, where it talks about being planted or rooted in God's word. And it's such a like, kind of a lovely image on a pleasant spring day, you know. Um, but when life is hard and circumstances are pushing up against me, what does it feel like to be anchored? It feels like being stuck. When life is not going well, stuck is the word we use, not anchored. And it's important for us to think about this because when we're stuck, what do we do? Uh, you know, it, the fight or flight response comes in. I suppose we could live in denial. Um, but when it really hits home and life is not going well, remaining anchored to Jesus feels like being stuck. And so if we choose to fight, you know, it means we try harder and we kick back against whatever it is that's being difficult in our lives and we shift blame because, you know, we're fighting and we argue. Or we choose flight and we run and we hide and we, we don't follow through on our commitments and we, we bail on our, um, our friends, our kids, our spouse. We change something, anything, it doesn't really matter, just, just change something because we've got to make it stop. But in those times, being anchored is going to feel a lot like being stuck, and that's okay, because unless you have kind of anticipated that reality in advance, you're going to be tempted to fight or run when life gets hard. When the circumstances of life buffet us, we have an anchor. It's going to feel like being stuck, but you can hold on to Jesus because he is good. It's going to feel like being stuck, and that's okay. And so in those times, you're going to need gospel community. You're going to need the church, the people of God, to surround you and remind you, this is what being anchored feels like. It's going to be okay. You need people to come around you and remind you that Jesus is your anchor and encourage you to just hold on to him. You've got to hear this now because when you really need to be anchored, it's going to be too late <laughs> to realize that being anchored feels like being stuck. And if you don't come to terms with that now, when the winds start to blow, you're going to fight or you're going to bail. That's what it's going to feel like, but what's it going to look like? What, what should we do? Well, I said at the beginning that uh, in times of struggle, our character, who we really are, comes out. Uh, it comes to the surface. And, and what that means is you cannot wait until the storm hits to build a character. It's something that we have to do week by week, day by day, moment by moment now, uh, before the storm hits. Um, we can't wait until the storm hits to begin holding on to Jesus. And so what I think this looks like in practice is just very simple, ordinary, everyday kind of stuff. Little tiny steps. It might look like developing, um, I mean, there's some just common stuff like developing good sleep habits, exercising regularly, um, getting quiet time. It definitely includes things like learning to pray, reading your Bible, uh, worshiping with God's people. 
And the reason that I know it includes those things is because those are the first things that we tend to throw overboard when the storm hits. Um, and they're the things that we really need. You know, when, when, um, when life is hard, all of a sudden I have no time to pray. I have no time to exercise. I have no time to uh, go to church. I have no time to sleep. Every small step, every ordinary act is like a wrapping. If you think about the metaphor, it's saying Jesus is the anchor and you need to be tethered to him. And so every small step is like wrapping another thread around that rope that binds you to your anchor. And no one of those steps like makes the difference. And yet over time, as we develop habits, as we develop character, that cord is thickened and thickened and strengthened and strengthened as we wrap one more thread around it. Um, reading the Bible, praying, worship, sleeping, quiet time. But there's one thing that's um, more tangible than all of that. And uh, I'm just going to say, like, this is not going to be a super popular thing, but there's a word. Sometimes when you're reading the Bible... And you read a passage like this and it's confusing and you're like, I don't know what that means. A helpful thing to do is to just look at what are the words that are repeated most frequently. And there is a word that, um, that or there, there's a thing that is, is referenced seven times in this passage and it's tithing. And um, tithing was the Old Testament standard. It, it means giving one-tenth of all that we earn to God and to his work. And uh, tithing is never explicitly commanded of Christians in the New Testament, but I think it serves as sort of a, a guideline for some of us. Maybe it's a, uh, you know, maybe it's a, a percentage of giving to work towards, and for some of us, maybe it's sort of like uh, the, the 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 bottom line, the least we can do. Um, but I don't think the percentage. Let me just say this. I know that we have uh, visitors from, from the Cain clan and, and others, and let me just be clear. This is in no way a pitch for anybody's money. Um, but why is he talking about tithing here in the sense of being anchored to Christ? I think the reason that he's saying this is that tithing is like the one way that we respond to God that is incredibly tangible and concrete. Giving of our money. I, I mean, think about this. Like, did you pray yesterday? I kind of did. I mean, I was in the car. I, I forget. Like, I started, and then I fell asleep. Um, maybe that's just me. But, you know, like, reading the Bible, yeah, I kind of, I mean, I saw a Bible verse. I was that in and out. Or, you know what? Like, I kind of did these things. There is no way to tithe, to give your money without knowing that you did it. It is an incredibly practical, it's a thing that only you really know if you're doing, but it is, it is, it is incredibly practical and tangible. We either give or we don't. Um, this is not an attempt to get anyone to give more. The question that this passage is posing to us is this, what are you holding on to? And I'm saying that it is impossible to hold on to Jesus as our anchor while we're also clinging on to our wallet, our bank account. It's just, it's just true. Hebrews is saying you can't have Jesus as your anchor while you cling to your wallet. You can't say that Jesus is enough without that affecting the way that you spend your money. 
I mean, think about this. If I say I love my wife and my kids, but you know, I give myself to them, they've got all my time and attention, but they're on their own when it comes to finances. Like, I don't really love my family very well, do I? If you have a problem with money, the only way that you can break the power that money holds over you is to give it away. Saving it won't, you can never save enough money to break the power that money has over you. And so the only way to break the power that money holds over us is to give it away. So having said that, let me just confess that personally I'm terrified of money. Um, I get paid based on the generosity of other people. And so I am always afraid that we're going to run out of money. And yet, I have been a pastor for, I don't know, what, 12 years, something like that, and we have never missed a meal. God has been faithful every single step along the way. And you know what? The same thing is true for you, even if your paycheck doesn't have the name of a church on it. God is the one who provides for you. If you think that having more money or making more money would make you happier, look at the news. Um... You know, people have said that this is the strongest the economy has ever been, which means that some people are making a lot of money right now. And if you think, like, if this is what happiness looks like, um, man, having more money is like pouring miracle grow on your issues. You know, whatever issues you have, you pour money on it and they just get way bigger. It's the only thing that changes. And the only way to break the power that money has over you is to give it away. Trusting Jesus, developing character, holding on to the anchor of your soul is a moment by moment, day by day, week by week um, practice. It's just one step after the other. But it's these small things that develop the character that we need when the storm hits. I'll finish with this. Ernest Shackleton, floating with 27 men in the middle of uh, an ice field for months, living on seal stakes and courage. No one in the world knew where they were. Nobody would come looking for them. And so their little iceberg that they're floating on gets kind of close to Elephant Island, and they get in uh, some life ship, lifeboats that they've taken, these three lifeboats that they've saved from their ship as it was destroyed. And they row for their lives to Elephant Island, and they get there, and they know that no help is ever coming. And they look at the maps, and they realize that their best chance of being saved is getting to a whaling station on South Georgia Island, 800 miles away. And winter is setting in. They're going to face, I think, their second winter in the Antarctic, stranded, marooned. And so they take what they think is the most seaworthy of their lifeboats, a 22-foot lifeboat, and they add a sail to it. And they, they, they do whatever they can because they're going to set off six of them for an 800-mile trip to South Georgia Island. And they know that as they do that, they will be facing hurricane-force winds and swells 60 feet high. They're in the middle of the ocean. There's no land to block any waves or wind. And they know that before they set off, they had to pack the ballast of that boat. 
And so for days, they picked up rocks from Elephant Island and put them in the bottom of that boat because without the weight in the bottom of the boat, without the weight in the base of that boat, they're just going to get hurled across the ocean once they set out. And so one small step at a time, they added a rock and a rock and a rock until they had a ton of rocks, literally, in the bottom of the boat. And six men took off and sailed through hurricane force winds for 16 days and made it to South Georgia Island where they got help and went back and rescued the rest of the men. And every single one of them survived. And the question that I want to ask you is this. How did they know that they had to put rocks in the boat? Because I would never have done that. And looking at you, I don't think that any of us would have come up with the idea. <laughs> the one thing we should do before we get in this rickety boat is put more weight in the bottom. But this was not Ernest Shackleton's first storm. It was his biggest, but it wasn't his first. And over time, and over years, and over literally being buffeted by wind and rain, he learned, and storms, he learned how to sail and how to navigate so that when the big one hit, he was ready for it. Not just him, but he was able to save all of the men with him. The point you get is simply this. You cannot wait until the storm hits to begin putting weight in the ballast of your boat. It is something that you need to start today, or last week, taking these small steps, practically human stuff, sleeping well, exercising, staying in shape, eating well, getting sleep. But more than that, developing a character, becoming the sort of person who knows how to pray, who knows how to read the Bible, who makes it a priority to join together with God's people, who actually gives. You have an anchor for your soul who has conquered sin and death. I love the book of Revelation. says he holds the keys to death and hate. That is such beautiful news. And he is your anchor. So hold on to him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are better than Melchizedek, this weird shadowy creature that we don't really understand. But I thank you for this weird passage that forces us to stop and go, what in the world are you talking about? Because as we do, it brings us face to face with who you are and what you've done for us. And so God, I pray that if any of us here have yet to put our trust in Jesus, that we would simply cry out to you and say, please help me, please save me. Save me from my sins. I trust you, Jesus. And God, for those of us who have walked with you for a long time, would you help us today to simply take one more step? Would you build in us uh, the character that only you can so that when the storms of life threaten to crush us, we can hold on to our anchor? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.